0: There's a lot of talk about women and gender in the workplace. We think that there are some major gaps in that conversation. But there's a bright spot in that fog. Dave Smith is a professor of sociology in the College of Leadership and Ethics at the U.S. Naval War College. Brad Johnson is a professor of psychology in the Department of Leadership, Ethics, and Law at the U.S. Naval Academy, and a faculty associate in the Graduate School of Education at Johns Hopkins University. In 2019, they published Athena Rising, How and Why Men Should Mentor Women. Their most recent book, and the topic of today's conversation, is Good Guys, How Men Can Be Better Allies for Women in the Workplace. Stay tuned, and we'll discuss. Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo
1: Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com.
0: Well, Dave Smith and Brad Johnson, welcome to the Indigo Podcast.
2: Yes! (laughs) Woo! Yeah. (laughs) Thank you, gentlemen. Good to be here with you. Good to be here. Thanks for including us.
0: Thank you so much. So we're just so excited to talk about this topic here today. And, um, you know, Chris, why don't you just take us off here? Yeah. So let's just
1: cut to the chase, guys. Two things. What the heck is an ally? And this sounds like a bunch of fluffy, mamby-pamby kumbaya that just, you, <laughs> the minute here, time to be an ally, you're like, snoozeville. But why is this important? What is an ally? And, and why should somebody that's just trying to get through the day give a rip?
3: Yeah, I think it's a great question and hopefully one that uh, your audience is ready to tackle here with us today. And so, you know, I think it's interesting that when Brad and I got started doing this work together many years ago, um, you know, we focused first in particular about how to engage men specifically as mentors and sponsors. And then it's interesting, you know, as Me Too at Widespread in 2017, we got pulled into this conversation, right, about how can men be better allies? And so what we're talking about here is how do we show up in the workplace and the kinds of relationships we have with our female colleagues, right? How can we be supportive, engaging, collaborative, uh, working towards equity and fairness and justice there in the workplace, but but really holding ourselves individually accountable for engaging in those relationships? So an ally is just somebody who's there, got somebody else's back, right? We're, we're there to make sure that Again, as we see things, um, we're we're working to level the playing field, act, equal access to resources. And I think the thing that we forget is that allyship, that ship at the end of there is about a relationship, right? It's, and this is about having relationships with, you know, making sure that we have female colleagues included in those as we think about our network in, in the workplace.
2: Yeah, and, and the why, Chris, I mean, gosh, you know, there, there are so many whys here. You know, one of them is a flat out business case, a bottom line case that companies with more women, more women in leadership, better gender balance, they just make more money. They're more viable. They're more creative. Uh, They have more sustained success. There's a moral case, right? You know, gosh, we, we want to include half the population uh, in opportunities, uh, economically and otherwise, and, and those are women that we care about. And then there's a the personal, you know, case for a lot of guys that you know I I know women that I, I want to have an equal footing in the workplace. My daughter, my partner, my sister; these are women I care about. Not to mention women I work with. So I I got to be all in uh, if I want them to be able to enter the workplace and find it equitable. You know, I'm so
1: glad you brought that up, Brad, because I have two daughters myself. Now, I was raised in a house with, you know, three boys, so our house didn't smell as good as, say, maybe some of the other houses on the block, (laughs) right? But, you know, we always bring this piece up. Why should we give a rip about doing good? Oh, because of the money. And I just want to interject that that's morally bankrupt, guys. Who wants to live... And yes, sometimes you got to start with bad reasons doing right. I'm okay with that. But hopefully we trend to the place of we want to live in, not the land of the dark elves where everybody's stabbing each other's back. Because I'll (laughs) see guys like, well, what about my ally? And like, dude, it stinks being in a work environment. Forget about the women for a second. It stinks being in a work environment. Where all the guys are cutthroat and stabbing each other in the back all the time. And so what do you do? You find a couple good guys and you're allies to each other against the garbage. And I just want to say that this is a time for you to just include some women in there and be allies against that cutthroat. You know, don't tell the women, you're like, oh, you think it's bad. You should see what the guys do to each other. No. <laughs> I mean, yes, you're get- what's good is you're going to make a lot of money if you do this right. That's great. But that's that's only that's maybe not the most morally best place to end up. It might be a good start. So let's take it to the motivations. So why'd you guys write this book?
2: Yeah, well, you know, so I I think there are two big things going on for us. Right. You know, we're both academic nerds. We can't discount that. Right. You know, I'm I'm a career long researcher in mentoring relationships, and I've always been concerned about this data that women don't get mentored as much, and they certainly don't get sponsored in the workplace. And so there was that academic curiosity. And then, you know, my colleague Dave comes along, this sociologist who writes uh, entirely about gender work and family. And we began having these conversations about why men don't show up, why men don't mentor, sponsor, and then why don't they even show up as great colleagues uh, with women in the workplace? So that was going on. But, we also have the personal, and I think if you talk to a lot of guys who are leaning in in this area there's always i think to your point chris there's always this personal connection, whether it 's daughters, whether it's wives and partners, whether you know it 's some other woman that I care about. in my case, it was my sister, um, you know, I entered the Navy as a Navy lieutenant, and I, I had four years active duty. My sister came in also. And she's still in. She's a rock star captain, commanding officer. And I've watched for 25 years her trajectory through the Navy. And I got to just tell you, she encounters headwinds every day that I never did. Right. Mm. Guys tell her to smile every day. Um, she's been told she shouldn't run too fast on PRT tests because, it, you know, the guys feel embarrassed. Um, she's been told that when she gives a guy direct—wait wait a minute—is
1: that for real? <laughs> yes. <Yeah.
2: laughs> yes. Hey guys, yes.
1: you stink at running. She's kicking your rear.
2: Oh well, my god. <laughs> I know yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I remember calling her one weekend, and she was kind of down. And I said, Shannon, what's up?" And she said, "Well, you know, we had this PRT, and you know, it was me and all the guys in the executive leadership team, and I won." And I said, Well, that sounds great. And she said, Well, I felt great initially, but then all the guys come across the line and they're like, Oh, wow, I got beat by a woman. And they're all coming up to her going, "Ah, You know, my Achilles, uh, you know, or I was a little dehydrated. They all had their own (laughs) excuses. And then she felt bad. And I said, Shannon, can you hear yourself? A dude would never say that. A guy would just be like, yeah, in your face, I crushed yeah, you. Yeah, you're
1: going to have to work out a little bit more, buddy. Lay off the cake.
2: <laughs> but, I, but women get these different messages, right? If they outshine guys and they're, you know, they're being obnoxious or abrasive or whatever it is. And Dave's got his own personal story.
1: So, but Brad, that was kind of an example of male mentoring right there. It wasn't really big and impactful. You're like, yo, sis, dudes yeah. would never apologize for that crap. Don't yeah. feel bad, right?
2: <laughs> yes, and, and I will say it's reciprocal, Chris, because she does the same thing with me, right? If I'm missing something or I'm misreading something in the workplace, my sister is my confidant. She's kind of my gender confidant. I can bounce things off, it's safe and she gives me the real scoop and and that's been incredibly helpful that two-way kind of mentoring.
3: Yeah, I think this this also this part about that Brad and I had lots of conversations in terms of you know why guys are not uh, don't see a role for themselves when it comes to this in their organization right of advancing not just people who look like them but all, all their all their employees, all the people that they work with out there and it was really perplexing to us as we, we started to, to under, get to understand this. And I think one of the challenges, back to what you said, Chris, earlier, is that, yeah, I mean, lots of people throw out this idea that this is the business case for this, right? You're going to make, there's more money to be made for your organization and maybe for you personally as well. But I think what the reason for that is that we forget. And I think this is the really important part is that it makes our workplace a lot more fun, a lot more enjoyable to be around, right? When we, when we have these different kinds of relationships and we can be better colleagues to each other and, you know, the fact that we can make better decisions and we can be more innovative and more creative and we combine work and family and we can talk about things that, you know, that we're interested in and we can have each other's backs. I think this, this whole part, like Brad said, that, you know, being able to get feedback right, from others in the workplace is really helpful, as opposed to this cutthroat, right, Com- ultra competitive, hyper masculine. Also
1: known as toxic workplace cultures, yeah. right? Yeah. Absolutely.
3: Yeah. Right. There's just no nobody wants to work in that place. I mean, we we can be all honest with each other for just a minute. It's like, I, I don't want to be a part of that. That's...
1: Even the winners don't want to work there because they're looking behind their back every minute. They're going to be stabbed or pushed off the roost. It's, it's disgusting.
3: The interesting thing is, though, that it it pushes us away from these kinds of relationships where we can be better people and better leaders, too, right? And the research, you know, again, I think the evidence is is really helpful in particular as you're making this message to men that, hey, we we become better leaders in terms of we get access to information when we have more diverse networks of people, right? And we have closer relationships with uh, our colleagues at work. We have these more diverse networks out there. Again, makes you more successful in your job as a leader. And we find that you have higher emotional intelligence, better interpersonal skills, more empathy, better communication skills. All makes you better as a leader, more fun, enjoyable to work with. And, you know, and again, it makes you a better person. So you get to take that home with you at night. And so you get to be a better parent, a better partner. And so there's just lots of great benefits that we just tend to avoid or we just don't talk about enough, I think.
0: You know, so one thing that I found really interesting in the book was how you articulated this idea of men being the missing ingredient in this entire problem. And, uh, you know, it, it's something that I, I feel like I noticed uh, when, you know, being around kind of the diversity conversation, um, but I did not articulate nearly as well as you did in the book, of course. Um, but I think it's a really interesting um, angle on this. And I'm just curious to know, you know, what do you think about some of the initiatives that organizations do to perhaps promote women, um, such as having all-female employee resource groups and those types of items. Um, how does that square with the research and your, your thoughts in this area?
3: Yeah, let me, I'll start. I know Brad's got yeah. thoughts too, but so, you know, employee resource groups, a, a you know, originally created to create a safe space, right? For for people in this case, we're, ta- we're going to talk about women's ERGs, for women to gather, to share resources, to network, to, in many ways, share experiences and understanding of how they're overcoming, um, you know, and, and in, these are places where women gathered, right, to be able to have a safe space to talk about these things, the challenges that they're facing, how to overcome them out there. But I think they, like, uh, again, a lot of people have recognized that, you know, at some point, if you don't bring men into the into this conversation or don't integrate or don't collaborate in some way, whether it's inside the ERG or outside, you know, it just becomes you're you're in this wind tunnel, right? You're just in there talking to each other. And we're we're not getting to any real solutions at that point. So I think there's some utility in terms of when women have these by themselves, but I think many of them have moved on to more of an Uh, and integrated looking at ways to pull men into these conversations, whether it's from their looking at specific programming, particular needs and uh, initiatives and policies that they're working on in the company. And I think that that's that's where we're beginning to see the shift and really make make it uh, a change when it comes to this.
2: Yeah, Yeah, and I think you'll like this gentlemen. So one of the things Dave and I find, we're getting asked to speak at a lot of women's conferences because of the content of our book. So we go to these conferences, and now they're starting because they're realizing, to your point, uh, that uh, men are the missing ingredients. So they're, they're having these subtracts, right, and they'll call them man ambassadors or male champions, right? And so it's a way to invite guys in so they can learn a bit more. Well, the, you know, the great thing about male champions is that guys show up, right? Yeah, I'm a champion. I'll, I'll go to this. <laughs> and and women understandably roll their eyes. Like, really, dude, I got to call you a champion just to get you interested in bah! equity and <laughs> fairness and justice. And And I think the truth is, well, maybe. You know, how do we pull these guys in? And that may be one way to do it. The problem is when these dudes then come to the event... And they're talking at women, right? They're mansplaining how women should do equity or overcome obstacles in the workplace. And our guidance to guys is, no, shut up. Just, just go and listen and learn, take notes. And then maybe at the right time, ask, how can I collaborate or what role can I play? But don't take over. Uh, you don't need to be the center of attention when you go to one of these equity events.
3: Yeah. For far too long, it's just been this You know, and I think the advances that women have made in the workplace have largely been to their ability to adapt to the current workplace, right? And I feel like, you know, up through about the year 2000, although we've taken about three steps backwards during the pandemic, you know, they advanced about as far as they could. Now we're just making these really tiny incremental advances because to a large degree, they've done everything that they can possibly do within the workplace, right? Now the workplace needs to change, right? And men need to be part of that solution. And that's the, I think that's the hard part. You know, that's why guys have to get in there and understand why they need to be part of this solution.
1: That's right. And just for our listeners, in case you fell asleep during our intro, we are talking with Brad Johnson and Dave Smith, author of an excellent book, pause, go buy this book, Good Guys, How Men Can Be Better Allies for Women in the Workplace. This book does not stink.
3: <laughs> <laughs> that that, that might be the best thing anybody's fest. ever said. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Cause a lot, of, guys, I gotta be honest, a lot of people that address this topic, it's in a way, it's not in a way that why should guys give a rip? And you and you guys really hit a home run here.
3: Yeah. Well, yeah. we appreciate that. And I think, you know, one of the things in particular that that the messaging to men, right, has been this blame shame game that it's like blaming men for all of this and shaming them. And it's like, you know, that just does not motivate behavior to create change or to to motivate behavior to, to create solutions here. And, you know, Brad and I have found that over and over again. It's like, no, we need to be more. We need to give aspirational messages, one, right, about what we can do and, and make it specific. Let's let's go to the guys and let's talk to them about what they're what what do they need to help? And really, it's, it's kind of a couple of things. It's, it's developing awareness and understanding of the problem. Because in many ways, as guys, we have not experienced it. We have not seen it. We don't know what it's like to walk a mile in a woman's shoes. And, you know, understanding that awareness, right, is key to solving the problem. It's really hard to fix things that you can't see. And so many leaders have told us that, men in particular. And then the final part of that is really about... I need to know what are the things I need to do. What are the practical everyday actions I can do? whatever role you know I'm in, in function in my in my organization, whatever level of leadership I'm in, what are the specific things I can do? Make it very tactical, strategic in in doing that. Because you know, frankly, a lot of guys are afraid to make mistakes. They're afraid to step in it to offend, and and they and they can come up with all sorts of examples about why that you know that's going to hurt them and, and why they shouldn't get involved. So we need to again motivate them to uh, give them the actions that they can start putting into practice today. Let, let's
1: talk about that shame piece because I feel like this is kind of part of the discourse. Hey, mm-hmm. I care, but that's an unknown region over there. You know, we talk about it's not enough to be not racist. You must be anti-racist. All men are sexist. Or, at, talk about the motivation piece. How If we want to bring people along, how should we present this to people other than it just seems to be that shame, go stand in the corner and feel bad about your life kind of. <laughs>
2: <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're not fans of the dunce cap in the corner kind of thing that I don't think that works for guys. I I think that, um, you know, we've already talked about motivations. And I I do think you've got to recognize that every guy you encounter is somewhere on this continuum, right? We, we think of it as the ally journey. And I wanna meet these guys where they are. And, and there are some guys who, you know, just, I think it's a small group. A, a few guys who are very misogynistic and just don't give a rip, they don't care. But that's a tiny group. Every other guy is somewhere on this continuum. He's somewhat open. Maybe he doesn't understand the problem. Maybe he doesn't have much interaction with women. Maybe he's a little anxious. There are other guys at the far end who are all in advocates. They're doing it every day. They're kind of role modeling for the rest of us. I just want to meet these guys where they are and recognize we need all these guys in the fight. So let's not alienate them. You know, let's not do the shaming thing. I, I don't want to go too far into the toxic masculinity thing. I'd rather focus on the aspirational and, and give them the uh, the picture of what it looks like when you're really showing up. Let's give them the tools. Let's equip them. Let's reinforce them. Let's encourage them. We'd really rather take that approach.
0: Yeah. Yeah, So, Brad, you know, you mentioned earlier this um, gap, you know, in terms of women being mentored. And I know this is a research area of yours. And the first book that the two of you wrote was Athena Rising, which focused on that idea of mentoring in the workplace as it pertains to gender relationships. And uh, I just thought, I'd love for you to maybe tease that out a little bit more and tell us a little bit more about what is the the mentoring gap here and, and what um, why should we care about it?
2: Yeah, well, I'll, I'll jump in and Dave, you may have other thoughts, but you know, the, there, there are a couple things here, you know, the, number one, there are some reluctance uh, sort of factors here. There are things that keep guys on the sidelines. Um, I'll mention that. And then Dave, maybe you can talk about this gap, you know, the aspiration gap we see all the time, but the reluctance stuff, you know, we've talked about the anxiety, the unknown. I don't have a manuscript script for how to have a close collegial non-sexual relationship with a woman in the workplace. So I'm Say uncomfortable. Say that again, Brad. Yeah, I don't have a manuscript. I, I I got I got manuscripts for how to have a relationship with a mom and a sister and maybe a partner, but no one ever gave me a manuscript for how to have this close, collegial, connected, trusting, and non-sexual, uh, non-romantic relationship with women. Mm. And because I don't know what that looks like, I don't have a roadmap, ooh, that's unknown. I'm scared about these false narratives about Me Too, which, believe me, are quite false. Dave and I have looked at the data. You're hearing all these false narratives that women make false accusations frequently against men. It's just not true. Uh, It's quite rare when that happens. So um, I have to kind of recognize some guys are on the sidelines for different reasons. I'll also just share one that I think you're going to enjoy. This one's kind of fun for us to talk about, Chris, and it's a whole attraction issue. So a lot of guys uh, have told Dave and I, hey, what if I'm trying to mentor a woman and she's attractive? Wouldn't that be awkward? What would I do? And we'd love to share with them some interesting research. In social psychology, there's this great research on perceived mutual attraction. And so they'll go into a workplace like yours and They'll have everyone fill out, you know, there's a list of everyone you work with. And anonymously, you rate, how attractive do I find everyone?
1: Hot or but, not in the workplace? Exactly. <laughs> <Brad>. Yeah. <laughs> with,
2: uh, with everyone I work I gotta with. I got
1: to get into research. Ben, <laughs> I've gone the wrong direction in my life.
2: <laughs> Social psychologists know how to have a good time with, with research. And then, And then there's another column where I anonymously rate, to what extent do I think each person I work with is attracted to me? And it turns out one gender radically overestimates that second column, right? And it's us dudes. We tend to think women are more interested in us than they actually are. So we love to share that with guys and just say, dude, she's really not that into you. So let's just keep it professional and not get hung up on that.
3: (laughs) (laughs) You know, and these were before Me Too, right? A lot of this, this reluctant male syndrome, as we called it in Athena Rising, was all before Me Too. But you know, there's this allyship, the allyship part of this, the gap that we see about why men don't get engaged in doing this work is, interestingly, and, you know, Brad and I found this in our research that in talking to lots of men, most men believe in gender equity. They believe in gender equality. Just like, again, there's a small percentage out there, yes, okay, that, that doesn't, doesn't want to be a part of this, and that's fine. Let, let them go crawl in their holes. But the rest of the men in the world, they do and And I think that that's important to re, to recognize that, okay, so most men, if we start in that place that most men believe in this, okay, then why aren't we why why are we still dealing with all of this? Why aren't we making faster advances and part of it is that just because you believe it doesn't mean you're actually doing it and it goes goes back to chris's comment, you know about the fact that am I an anti sexist? It's not enough not to be sexist, are you an anti sexist right and so this gets to the public piece about are you doing the work? Are you doing the actions every day to create equity in the workplace? And are you holding yourself accountable for it? And and back to the kind of the blame-shame game, we don't believe in blaming and shaming, but at the same time, we do think that we have to hold each other accountable, right? And this is something that we as men can do for each other. And, And again, the women that we are allies with, you know, they can help to hold us accountable too for doing that work. The 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 best solution right to creating or eliminating this gap is feedback. And this is the part that's hard. It's really hard because now I have to I got to have some humility and put myself out there and, you know with other men and with women and again this kind of goes against the whole bro code out there that you know that I'm somehow I'm not perfect or that I don't have all the answers in the workplace and that I that I need this feedback, so I want you to tell me when I step in it. And I need her in particular to go, hey, you know, today, Dave, when you said that in the meeting, and all the women rolled their eyes. Here's why. It's like, oh my God, thank you. Um, and and you know, accepting that I'm not perfect, I'm going to make mistakes along the way. And then, as guys, we got to share that information. Got to got to start to share that, right? And and to understand um, how we can all become better. But we got to hold each other accountable in doing that work.
1: Yeah. So just a brief back there. So there's like this place where we're trying to go. Right. But we fully don't know what that looks like. And so we're taking a growth mindset of we're just going to grow in that direction because where we're at is kind of lame. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or not so good, I should say. Um, so and then, the, the, you know, you mentioned this thing. It's like it's, you know, anti-sexist. It's so hard to conceptualize that because we don't want to be morally fallible. Hmm. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I've, I've struggled with this as I've done a lot of reading in the sex and race and gender spaces and all that kind of stuff. I, and it's not that I want to do the minimally viable, not sexist. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, right. hold on, wait, wait, is the line here? Is it here? Is it right? Where's it at? How How can myself as an individual conceptualize some kind of sense of self that has autonomy that's worthwhile on this planet and then also the gaps from where i want to be and where we're trying to go as a society
2: yeah yeah that's gosh that's where that humility i think really kicks in and you know what dave and i are always talking about is a learning orientation uh chris said man i I I want to give myself permission for the whole humanity thing and the whole fallibility thing. I want to recognize I'm somewhere on this continuum, somewhere on the journey. Uh, And then I would like to surround myself by people who I've developed trusting relationships with who are going to give me the feedback, as Dave's saying. And i got to open myself up to that. Um, I'm going to get it wrong. Um, Dave and I happen to get it wrong frequently, uh, as two guys who have been writing in this area for like eight or nine years, we get it wrong. And, you know, when we were first writing our very first book, Athena Rising, um, we, this is all about how men can mentor women. We had a different title, as is often the case. Our, our title at that time was Guiding Athena. Um, that was Dave's title. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) <laughs> um, it, it, was, it, it was, we thought it was an awesome title, right? Guiding is a synonym for mentoring. Athena's very aspirational. And our, our editor, publisher, came to us, and it was a woman. And it was almost before publication. It was getting really close. And she says, um, guys, could we talk about this title, Guiding Athena?, have you thought about how that might land with women, right? That they need to be guided? <laughs> and it was like, boom, epiphany. No, we, we missed it, totally missed it. And there have been those experiences all along the journey where we have needed both men and women, but largely women to say, hey, guys, um, can we talk about this? You're blowing it or you missed it and you need to get better. So yeah, I think you've got to be really comfortable with imperfection if you're doing this work.
0: You know, so one thing you bring up in the book is this idea of being a tempered radical. And this comes from Deborah Meyerson's work, um, she's Mm -hmm. from Stanford, and this idea of uh, how you can act in in an organization and be a little bit different in order to be a driver for organizational change. And I'm curious to get your take on how that relates to this idea of being an ally, Um, you know, allies as tempered radicals, so to speak
3: yeah and and we love the this idea of tempered radicals so it, it's kind of you're the you're the insider with an outsider perspective so as being one of the you know as a white man in in most workplaces today, you are truly the insider you are the definition of an insider for the most part that you understand the system the system in many ways is designed for you the workplace is designed for men's work it was created by men it's very comfortable to work around as long as you can begin to understand, right, of how it benefits you, right? This, we're getting into the, the notion of what Brad and I would call the P word. And we don't use it very often because privilege sets off defenses and all sorts of mm. bells and whistles. <laughs> <laughs> and, but it, but it is, it's recognizing in many ways how the system is set up to, to facilitate, you know, what you do. And, and I think about it for myself all the time. It's like, you know, I've never had to spend a whole lot of time thinking about what's next you know as long as you kind of understand where you're headed and what your career what what your career goal is in many ways the rest of it just kind of lays itself out for me not so much for other people who don't look like me and so being a, being an insider and under, once you can understand that and then having this outsider perspective is really about seeing how others experience the workplace differently right so as, if you can see that if you can have your eyes open to that Um, again, whether that's through, hopefully through lots of relationships you have with people who don't look like you reading great books out there, like good guys, uh, Mm -hmm. listening to podcasts like this one, right. Um, beginning to understand how people experience the workplace differently, then bringing that back in, right? Now you can use your insider perspective to begin to think about, Hmm, where can I create change? Where are the everyday practices here, right? That are not equitable. Where's bias introduced into it? the employment process is full of it right from everything from the hiring recruiting how we decide who to retain who to promote advance pay benefits you name it i mean it's just it's full of places you can begin to look at everyday practices and how it doesn't it doesn't help some people as much as me in particular and so i think that outsider perspective is really helpful and that's what i think that's what they're talking about
0: yeah so we're not going to change our organizations by just continuing to do
3: everything the same way are we No, the status quo is not going to get us anywhere. (laughs) But wait,
1: I went to a, I I listened to a podcast with Brad and Dave. I'm good, right?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, your potential. I felt bad about
1: myself for six minutes and then, you know, (laughs) Well, you know, it's an
3: interesting point though, because, you know, often in organizations we find that leadership, right, as they're trying to i think in in many ways, I think very honestly trying to sort out and and solve some of these problems will create programs right so it might be a women's mentoring program for example and and again they they if they're not involved, they're not actually monitoring or hold- holding people accountable for the results and are we really creating change or are we just checking another block is another another c y a action out there and i think this is where leaders today are starting to be held accountable for this you know it's not okay just to have strategic messaging about gender equity or racial equity in your organization. People wanna see change. They wanna see the action that goes with it.
0: Right, you know, one thing that Chris and I oftentimes say is you can't fake this stuff. I think it applies across a number of different ways that you can behave as a leader, but if it's not, if it's not coming from a place of authenticity and what you actually mm. care about these things, then it is going to turn into this, oh, well, we did the program, we have the budget, you know, what, do you, what else do you want from us, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and we find that absolutely. And I'll just say on the interpersonal level, women are really attuned to this, um, Ben, that, you know, women know who the fake male allies are. You know, this is the guy who uh, slings on his ally cape uh, maybe <laughs> to impress a woman, to, to please his boss. You know, you notice that he's only kind of woke around gender when his boss is watching him. Uh, or when you know he's in a meeting with a couple of women wants to show off, but then all the other you know the, the other hours of the day he's spending engaging in all the bro banter he's telling the jokes, he's laughing at the jokes he's not he's not all in um, it, it's very selective, it's very superficial. and I will say the women that we interviewed for good guys, they have those guys figured out pretty quickly that as you say it's not coming from a place of authenticity it's not consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, when she's not in the room, um, he's back to the old, you know, the old game, the old bro behavior and women know who those guys are.
3: And I can tell you, putting yourself out there, you know, as somebody who, you know, if you claim the title of ally or, or, or you're at least doing the work. So people like Brad and I, for example, publicly out there, you know, advocating and doing this work, you're going to be held accountable on everything. And just Brad shared one story with you, but there's lots of stories of that, of of different, again, things. We get that feedback, which is great. And we get better. We learn from it and then we share it with other men out there. But we, we need more of that, right? We need more people putting themselves out there publicly, right? Of doing the work and trying to get better at it.
0: Yeah, that's great. So I'd like to move now to some of the uh, pieces that are in the book in terms of these three different parts of kind of this allyship equation. You talk about interpersonal allyship, you talk about public allyship and systemic allyship. And maybe we could start with that first one, this interpersonal allyship. Uh, what's that all about?
2: Yeah, well, I'll dive in there. That I mean, I think in many ways, Ben, this is the easy part of allyship. You know, So we like to start here because I think guys can master this part more easily. When we get into public systemic, that gets a little tougher, man. I got to put more skin in the game there. Um, so the, the interpersonal. This is how I show up in my daily relationships with women and female colleagues. And here's some of the best practices. And remember, for for our book, we went out and interviewed lots and lots and lots of women, and we asked them. What does it look like behaviorally when a guy really shows up and is doing the work? And so on the interpersonal side, here's some of the things. Listening. I think we had no idea how bad men are at listening until we started doing these interviews. So many women said, could you just listen? And I mean listen with the intent to understand, not with the intent to fix me, fix my problem. I don't need you to do that. I just need you to listen What we call generous listening. I just need you to really hear me. Could you not make assumptions about me because I'm a woman, right? If she's a woman, therefore she wouldn't be interested in this promotion or, you know, she must want to do this. No, actually check with me. Discern what my career dream looks like. Spend the time doing that. Pass the friend test, meaning, you know, don't say things about her behind her back that you're not saying to her directly. If she hears something that you said about her when she wasn't in the room, it should be affirming uh, and positive. Can you make sure that she's included, right? Too often women get left off key meetings. They, they're not on the invite list. They, uh, they don't have a place at the table when there's a meeting. You know, she may be the subject matter expert, but she didn't get included in this key conversation with major stakeholders. Um, can, I, uh, can I really work on um, the sponsorship piece is the last one I'll offer. So we mentioned that women don't get sponsored the way that men do. And if I'm a guy and I want to be a better colleague and a, a better advocate for women in the workplace... I got to be really thoughtful about am i pushing women forward am i a deliberate sponsor and our best example of this was cheryl sandberg got to interview her for both books but she said hey when it comes to mentoring let me tell you what it looks like my mentor right out of college was secretary of the u.s treasury everywhere we went on the world stage he would introduce me for like a couple minutes to each person we encountered he would just go on and on raving about me and I said, Larry, that's embarrassing. Stop. And he said, Cheryl, this is how things take off. This is how your career launches. This is sponsoring. You've got to let me do this. So, I think litmus test for us men: Are you talking about her when she's not even in the room? Are you her raving fan? Are you telling other people why she should be next up for some promotion? If you're not doing that work, it's a real missed opportunity to get to better gender equity.
1: Yeah, and. Yeah, and we're not talking about sponsoring or upholding women that can't do the job, right? right? Mm-hmm. It's not right. just because she's female and walking around in your place of employment doesn't mean she needs the boost, right? It's it, but there, is there a shortage of competent women?
2: There's not. No. <laughs> <laughs> there is not. Talk about a
1: soft pitch.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but I will say, Chris, that men, you know, you talk to men, and they get. They get creeped out by this loud sponsorship, right? If I'm her raving fan when she's not even in the room, what are people going to think, right? Is there mm-hmm. something weird going on here? What What is she, his girlfriend? That sounds weird. He's just raving about her. So lesson for guys, don't just sponsor one woman. Sponsor a lot of high-talent women because I guarantee you, they're all around you, sponsor men and women, and then people will just know, hey, that's his brand. That's what he does.
1: Yeah, if you just sponsor just one woman, yeah, it's going to come off weird. That's why you got to make it a daggone habit, right?
2: Yeah, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> absolutely.
3: Big, yeah. it's part of your brand. It's part of who you are. But you know, so much of what these specific skill sets that Brad just mentioned are really all about, again, developing awareness, developing an understanding of how other people experience the workplace differently than I do. Because once I, again, back to how do we close the gap? I got to understand the problem. And, I, I, and if I don't spend time listening, I don't spend time making, you know, voiding assumptions and all, doing all of this work and having these kinds of relationships, I am never going to understand the problem in a way that I can solve it out there. And, and part of this is also re- remembering that we can't, you can't generalize what one woman tells you to all women. Just like for us, the four of us sitting here today, you can't generalize my experiences to all of us or any, right? We're not all not all men are monolith, just like women. And you know, this came out loud and clear, in particular, as we talked to, to women of color um, when we were doing the research and remembering that, that people experience the work and they have different intersectional identities that are going to create unique challenges. And just like we've seen with the pandemic, right? All the w- millions of women who are being forced out of the workplace, right? All these jobs uh, that, that women have lost, um, again, if you said, oh well we're, we're going to fix this, right to sort this out. We're going to target programs and money and policy toward all women. Well, you would fail generally because why? because well, it, it disproportionately affects women of color more than 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 white women. Right. And so if we didn't disaggregate the data a little bit and look a little deeper, really begin to understand the problem, we would totally miss that. And so I think it's really important, you know, that in particular as we think about women of color, they they would tell us that hey, I feel like I worked twice as hard to get half as far. This is the kind of a double double jeopardy notion. Um, the other one that's kind of very different that I think a lot of men don't understand or haven't heard is that sometimes women of color feel invisible, and they will talk about this invisibility, right? That. I just don't feel like I'm seen or heard or valued in the same way. And it was really interesting. We had a conversation the other day with a participant in one of the events that we did. And she said, you know, it really resonated with me because part of it is that when when white when senior white men look at me as a black woman, they they have a hard time identifying with me because they don't see their daughter. They don't see their wife. They don't see their you pick the white woman that they're close to. And they understand that experience. But then they look at her and they go, I don't see you. And and hmm. so they don't know what to do at that point. And they don't get so they don't get the same kind of sponsoring. They don't get the same kind of mentoring. They don't get the same opportunities that, that again, we're seeing for white women out there. And so you can't just, again, put a blanket on this and go, oh, well, it's all women. Right. It's not right in that way. And so. I think that's important too as we think about developing awareness. The the other piece of this I think is really important is is as we begin to develop the awareness, is putting it into practice, right? Situational awareness. And so where do you do that? I don't know. Well, great spaces where there's lots of people, like those darn meetings that we always have <laughs> to go to. And you can do those in the physical, you know, in-person workspace, and you can do that in a virtual setting. And you can just start by asking. All right. Let me just start by asking myself lots of questions. Like, all right, who's in the room? Who got included? Who got a seat at the table? Who got who got totally excluded? Didn't get invited to the meeting? Who's got a speaking role? Who's getting plenty of airtime to make their contributions? Who's getting overlooked? Who's having their expertise completely dismissed or devalued? Who's having their ideas stolen? I can't tell you how many times Brad and I heard this story, and I and it, I, I about broke my neck shaking my head every time I heard it a woman, a senior woman would tell us about how she had this idea, she put it out there, and it would just kind of land flat, nobody paid much attention to it. And then, you know, 20 minutes later, some dude would have the same idea repackaged as his own taking credit for it. And it's like, whoa, wow, Brad, what a great idea. That's incredible. (laughs) And, And I just remember thinking to myself, I have never had that happen to me. I have no visibility on that whatsoever. And Brad felt the same way. And, you know, but now that I'm aware of it, I can look for it. And then when I look for it, guess what? I begin to see it. And it's yeah. really easy. Once you've seen it, then you can think about, all right, so what are the public things that now I can do, right? Getting into the public allyship. Mm-hmm. What can I do to disrupt it in the moment? But the crazy thing is that, you know, just to show you how little uh, visibility we as guys have on this is women have terms and names for these things, just like mansplaining. So they call this bro so when <laughs> when bros take women's ideas, right, and take credit for them out there, th- but they have language for all of this and we're just oblivious to it in many cases.
0: Yeah. Well, and so this uh, this idea of public allyship that you're starting to delve into here, um you know, you refer to these in the book as different watchdog skills, and yeah. I think that's great, you know, where you it, it's kind of kind of goes back to what we've been trained in the military and and you know, regarding terrorism, you see something, you say something. And uh, what are some other things that you should look out for as, let's say you're a, a male leader and you're like, I, I buy it, you know, I buy it in terms of the ideas and I also buy it in terms of the book. Um, but let's, uh, I want to do this. Um, what other types of things maybe should they be w- watching out for?
3: Yeah. So I think, I think a lot of it, you know, the egregious stuff is pretty obvious, right? But there's just a lot of biased language, right? And non-inclusive language that we can be attuned to out there. And, and again, I think that the challenge for us as men is in some cases is not so much recognizing it, because I think more and more we recognize it. We just don't do anything about it. We Or we look around the room and go, oh, you know, is who is somebody else going to say something? Was somebody else offended? Did somebody else pick up on that? Um, what What did the women in the room, did they notice it? How are they reacting to it? And we quickly do this calculus about whether we're going to do anything. And as it turns out, you know, bystander research tells you that if you don't do something within a couple of seconds, you're you're probably not going to do anything. And so this is one where Brad and I advocate, you need to do something, say something in the moment right there to, to disrupt the back to the status quo, to make everybody put it out there on the table so everybody sees it and goes, oh, OK. And if you're not sure what to say, we often, again, we'll, we'll recommend this technique, the ouch technique, we call it. <laughs> and so and it's kind of weird and it's kind of quirky and awkward but it's one of those where you know that agreed that that sexist or biased comment was just made people were wondering what to do and you don't know what to say and you just go ouch
2: <laughs> and it's really
3: weird and everybody begins to look at you and it buys you a few more seconds and you can begin to think about all right so now what am i going to say and, and then you can you can begin to own it right and say hey i i didn't find that to be funny or That's I I don't appreciate that. I don't appreciate you you demeaning our female colleagues or we don't do that here. That's not who we are. Whatever the you know, the feedback is that you want to give in the moment. The um, and the one thing there you cannot do is you can't go, hey, uh, Ben, dude, you can't say that there because, you know, Mary's here in the room. It's like, no, mm. you got to mm. own that for yourself. Yeah, right? say it
1: when she's gone. That's so exactly. much better. <laughs> 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 oh, <vomit. laughs>
3: but you hear these things all the time, right? Wow. And, and we have to, we have, we do have to do that. And we have to recognize that, you know, it's the calculus for doing this is not always that simple either, right? So sometimes, you know, do I do it in public or, you know, a lot of times, as we many of us have been trained, it's like, oh, no, we give feedback like this and critical feedback like this in private. Sometimes, yes. There might be a, you know, depending on the relationship to who that guy is. Is he a more older, older guy? Is he a younger guy who's trying to get it? Maybe he's just oblivious to this. You know, what was the comment? Who was in the room? These are things that you're thinking about very quickly, trying to think about whether I should say something right there or wait and say something in private. At the bottom line of all this is how can I be most effective in changing behavior? Right? How can I influence? this person as well as others, right? So when there's others in the room, we're influencing them too. And, you know, one of the things we find again, in the social psych research is that as guys, we have this expectation that all the other men in the room have a really high level of acceptance of sexist and biased comments. The fact is most men don't, it just takes one person saying something and and suddenly it's like, oh, thank you for doing that. I, I was really uncomfortable with that too. And I'm glad you said something. And and it makes a difference when we as men, as the majority group out there, say something. Because, again, guys are worried about being penalized. But the fact is that you're not going to lose your bro code. And you're not going to violate the, you're, you're, I'm sorry, you're not going to lose your man card and violate the bro code there if um, if you say something. We actually, as guys, sometimes we don't get penalized at all. Or in some cases, we get a bump up in terms <laughs> of our evaluations or how people perceive us. Because dude, Chris, now you're a, you're a champion out there. You're back to, yeah, way to go, man. Appreciate you doing that. As opposed to women, if they say something, they do get penalized. And the research mm. is really clear on that. They are gonna get penalized for saying something because then it's seen as self-interest. Right. So really important that, again, um, that we, we step forward and think about how do we disrupt the status quo? How do we confront or, this kind of behavior and just call it out?
1: All right. So let me ask a tough question on that one. All right. Because we're, you know, we interpersonally, we can get that. All right. We're helping everybody out. Okay, maybe change a few things here. Public. I can say it in public. But now let's talk about something that kind of bridges that public and systemic allyship. There's only so many jobs at the top. Nancy's smarter than me, but I really want that promotion. Right? You see that kind of stuff, and it's like, well, you know, I couldn't beat her in the field, so I'll just pick up these little hand grenades that are in our public ethos sexism, (laughs) racism. I mean, we see people do that all the time as a power play. They push people out. If you're at the head of an organization and you want to change that culture, what are some practical steps to prevent that kind of numbskullery? You know, because there's always going to be somebody that can be unaccountable, right? We can't stop that. But what can you do if you are interested hey I'm, at, I'm the CEO. I don't have to compete. I don't have those pressures for bringing home the bacon, that kind of thing, but I don't want people winning that way in my org what 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 are some things you can
2: do there? Wow, yeah, that's a great question, Chris. I, you know this is this is you're really going to get into the accountability issue, right? So how do I do allyship from the top and hold people accountable um you know, I, I think that the kind of culture that I create as a leader has much to do with this. And, you know, what am I rewarding? What kind of behavior am I rewarding? Um, you know, I, I can talk all I want about a sort of a mentoring culture and an equitable culture. But what do I really reward at the bottom, at the end of the day? You know, is it, is it just bottom line financial stuff? or is it the way that you show up every day? And, and am I assessing that, am I evaluating it? Because people know um, how their colleagues are showing up and so am I, am I tapping that? Is that part of semi-annual evaluations that we ask what somebody's like as a colleague? Are they supportive? Are they a great mentor? And then do we actually reward that? Um, I think that you have to do some of that accountability if you want to get the right people moving forward. Another piece of this, especially when it relates to gender, is actually doing accountability when it comes to who your top executives and managers are sponsoring and mentoring, right? So we see more and more companies, Ernst & Young is one uh, great example, that are now requiring, especially men beyond a certain level, they have to sponsor at least two talented junior women they're, they're required to, and then they're evaluated on how far she goes and how successful she is in the company that That really begins to change you know my thinking. This is not zero sum. this is not just one of us winning. If I'm promoting more women, Ernst and Young is going to do better, and you know the pie gets bigger for all of us, so there's more opportunity so you know crushing that zero-sum kind of thinking that i think men fall prey to when it comes to this equity issue
3: yeah i think there's a couple pieces real quick a couple pieces to this that are really important in creating this culture as senior leaders in particular um being able to talk about these topics and issues in a way that is meaningful to especially to frontline managers who are really you know where the rubber meets the road out there And way too many senior leaders are really uncomfortable talking about diversity and inclusion. They're they're uncomfortable talking about gender. They're uncomfortable talking about race. And I, I think they need to learn how to get comfortable being uncomfortable in many ways that, you know, this is really about how do you create your personal narrative about why this is important to you? And can you share that story with people that really connects it to them? And then once they see that it's personally important to you, how do you connect it to the business, the mainline part of what you do? This is not some HR program. This is not just a DI thing. This is a part, this is functionally important to how we accomplish our, our job and our mission out there. And once you can do that, people start to sit up and take notice. And then the second part of this is really about transparency. Are you tra- how transparent are you about these different programs, initiatives, goals, targets, whatever the case might be in your company? Are you showing how you're doing, how you're progressing at this? Because this is what begins to build trust in the organization. People say, Hey, I hear you saying this. Show me what we're doing and, and how well are we doing at it? And that's just the internal part to the organization, right? The external part is important too, because investors are looking, your diverse talent out there for future employees, they're looking. Everybody's looking today to see. Can you walk the talk? You just said uncomfortable so many times in this episode. Yeah. And I just want to say, as
1: somebody who evaluates executives and does a lot of C-suite coaching, wait a minute, you're uncomfortable talking to women, but I'm supposed to hand you like 20 million of top-line revenue to manage? <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> yes. What,
1: what the heck yes. is that,
2: dude? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm so glad you say that, Chris, because one thing, though, Dave and I get pushback, you know, and this is a question I bet you guys hear all the time, but- We have men say, yeah, no, I'm sorry, I would never take a closed-door meeting with a woman. You know, that's just too risky. And, you know, our response to that is almost to be incredulous. Like, really, you're a leader in 2021 and you can't have a meeting with a woman? You need to resign and hand that job over to somebody who's more comfortable and confident. Or, you know, hand your job over to a woman. Uh, but, But... I'm sorry. It's yeah, and f- then tell me how you feel when
1: she feels uncomfortable taking a meeting with
2: you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, well, you know, so that, that's interesting. So if she wants an open door meeting, that's great. But, you know, message to men who feel uncomfortable meeting with women, then don't you dare uh, meet with the door closed with men. That's just not fair, right? So at least, at least create a level playing field. This is
0: great. You know, I'm sure we could talk for hours about this. I want to, I'm being mindful of the time and want to start to bring us in for a landing here. You know, in the conclusion of your book, um, it, it's called The Future in a World of Allies. And you kind of make the case that um, doing all of this would essentially make the world a better place. And, you know, I it kind of seems like you both kind of want to change the world and make the world a better place. And I'm just curious, really quickly, what motivates you guys personally? Start with you, Brad.
2: Yeah, well, I, I do think that there's a personal motivation for me, and I it, it stems from my sister. Look, you know, I got one sibling. She's a rock star Navy captain. I've just watched for too long, you know, all the gendered headwinds she faces uh, every day going to work. She's an amazing person, um, and, I you know, I don't have a daughter, but if I did, I'd want her to show up in a workplace that was a bit more welcoming, a bit more equitable Um, I have a lot of women that I work with, great colleagues that I care about. I'd like them to show up every day and not face these headwinds uh, that I never have. So, yeah, that's the personal piece for me.
3: Yeah, and for me, you know, I I think about, you know, my kids in particular. I think about for my son and my daughter. um, And I just focus on, it's easy to focus on my daughter here, but I would just focus on my son for a minute to think about all the junior men that I work with, too. Who are trying, again, were raised in, in, again, to see more egalitarian perspectives on what uh, work and family look like, what gender roles look like, and, and their expectations that they want to be a part um, of their kids' lives, and, and they want to be an equal partner at home, to their, because most of them have partners at home that are working um and And so, how can we do this more equitably and and I just would like to see us be able to create a workplace where they can begin to do that right, and we can have conversations where, as men, we have an opportunity to talk to ourselves and to women about family and the the challenges that we're having and how can we how can we create policy and programs that again help us to thrive in the workplace to be better and to be more efficient and more effective right because I think yeah, that's great for the organization. And, and I think there's a, again, there's an important part to that, but it, it also helps us be more successful in our lives and at home.
0: Wonderful. Well, I just want to point all of our listeners to the website workplaceallies.com, where they can learn more about the book and about uh, the great stuff that Brad and Dave are doing. And we are just so grateful to both of you for being a part of the Indigo podcast.
2: Hey, thanks for including us, Ben and Chris. That was a blast. Yeah, that
3: was fun.
0: Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.